last week looking at the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. I intend to take a study through at least the first 11 chapters, very formative foundational material for all of God's Word. We uh, actually managed to cover half a verse last week, and uh, with as vast as this material is, I thought that was doing pretty well. We'll try to go a little farther today, at least through the second verse. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and then I'm also going to add, just as a parallel text, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. First of all, Genesis, chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then adding these words from the author whose name we don't know for sure, who wrote this wonderful letter called Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And this is the Word of God. You're all aware, I think, of the Hubble Space Telescope, an instrument of science which for a number of years now has opened up windows on the universe in an even more grand way than astronomers ever knew how to do before. As the Hubble Telescope trains a zoom lens on the extent of our Milky Way galaxy, with its estimated, I'm told, 200 billion stars. Who estimates a thing like that? 200 billion stars spinning in dark space like a gigantic spiral pinwheel. We are told that our sun and its solar system of planets spinning around it are only like tiny particles in one arm of this gigantic unfathomable formation of a galaxy. But if that is not enough, there are thousands more galaxies for us to try to comprehend in this universe that God has made. They tell us that new stars by the thousands and even millions are being born every single day. As clouds of interstellar gases contract under the force of gravity. I'm told that as this gas reaches a critical temperature, here again, how do, you, how do you even imagine such a thing? A temperature of 20 million degrees Fahrenheit, that hydrogen atoms explode with tremendous force and begin a thermonuclear bonfire of sorts, a gigantic chain reaction that keeps on burning at the core of a star through unimaginable lengths of time. 
and eons and eons later as that star begins to use up its hydrogen atoms. It starts to redden and begin to burn itself out, not in a moment, but over centuries of time. And that, we're told, is how our own sun was formed and how it will eventually come to an end unless there is divine intervention before that end comes. The sheer vastness of the created universe. I could spout statistics on and on, beggaring the power of descriptive language to think about the huge expanse that we call space and the cosmos, the universe. It's something we don't reflect about very much. We, we go around with our eyes on the ground. We barely even look up at the clouds and the stars above these days. And we certainly don't stop to consider how very minuscule we actually are measured against the vast reaches of our Creator's cosmic domain. That's what David, who was once a shepherd boy, laying on his back out there in Palestinian meadows, looking up at the clear sky, David wrote in the 8th Psalm. He must have had that in mind when he said, O Lord, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man? that you care for him. Well, today we continue exploring Genesis 1, this opening page of our Bible. Last time I thought I did well to dissect four opening words, just giving you the subject of the sentence. In the beginning, God. I asked with you very fundamental questions. Why is there a universe and not nothing? And we find out that studying the physical creation itself will never answer that question for us because as long as we're just looking at contingent matter that, that is there, we can't say what non-contingent causes brought it into being. We have to look outside to some force or being or someone outside the closed system of nature that brought it all into being. In striking contrast, and I know the contrast was very deliberate when Carl Sagan, the late Dr. Carl Sagan, wrote his book called Cosmos. Many of you will remember the TV series which he hosted by that name. He wrote a book that I believe deliberately mocked the first sentence of Genesis. For Sagan's book, Cosmos, begins with this sentence. The cosmos is all that is, ever was, or ever will be. In other words, matter has always been there, it's there now, and it always will be. Well, the problem with Dr. Sagan's statement, and he knows better by now, is the fact that even most scientists don't accept that. The principle of what's called the steady state theory, or the idea that matter as it is has always been, is not accepted by most scientists. Most of them say there had to be some beginning, whatever it was. They They won't necessarily point to the God of Genesis. But they say it just wasn't always the way it is, as Dr. Carl Sagan said. And we saw the Bible's leading presupposition here last time that the eternal preexistence of God is where we start. That's our given. We look at that and we say, all right, we take our stand here and we'll move forward and see if this is a reasonable thing to say. Does it accord with reality as we know it. If somebody wanted to write out Genesis 1-1 as 
a mathematical formula would be fairly simple. You would write God plus nothing equals everything. That's what Scripture is saying. Now, we do take this, of course, on faith. We make no apology for that. Hebrews 11.3 declared it. I read a moment ago that by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what it was visible. Now, Carl Sagan or others like him would say, well, that's blind faith. That's just a leap. You can't prove it. You don't know it. Well, we don't think it's so blind because the acid test of any presupposition is, as you move forward with it, does it prove to be reasonable and in accord with the facts that you can observe in your world and by your empirical science? And at the end of the day, what we find out is there is no other presupposition that gives any better account of how all things came to be than that platform on which the Bible begins. The late Dr. Francis Schaeffer reminded Christians that, of course, we are thankful to God for our salvation. And that is where we're often addressing him with thanks. Thank you, Lord, for saving me through Jesus Christ. But Schaeffer said, you know, if we want to be really scriptural, we should begin praising God at an earlier point than that. We have to begin praising him simply for the fact that he is there. And he's always been there. And because he willed all things, including man, into existence by his power. Well, today I want to begin then with the verb of the Bible's first sentence. I left you dangling with just a subject last time, and you know enough elementary English to say, you know, if, there, if your sentence is the boy, you want to know what the boy did. The boy ran. Well, we said in the beginning God, but what's the verb? So now let's look for a moment at the verb that is here in this sentence of Genesis, an all-important word. In the beginning, God created. And what we discover, especially if you look into the root meaning of the original language of the Scripture, is that it's a very unique word, and it teaches us this lesson, the lesson that only God truly creates anything at all. You see, we use the word to create very loosely, very carelessly, same way we use the word miracle. I get upset all the time at the news broadcast. You know, somebody uh, was in an accident, and they got, oh, it's a miracle that you weren't. No, it wasn't a miracle, not unless your car jumped up over the other car and, you know, somehow supernaturally uh, God interrupted the rules of nature. It wasn't a miracle. It was a wonderful providence, perhaps, that you were spared. But strictly, it's not a miracle unless the laws of nature are interrupted. Well, you and I use this word in Genesis, the word to create, carelessly, like we do the word miracle. I could say that my daughter is a very creative person. She is. She's very good at interior decorating, at matching colors and patterns, and making a room very congenial and attractive. And she's a creative person. And we have many such people in our congregation, artists who could take oil paints or acrylics and a canvas and make a a wonderful portrait of someone or a still life or a landscape. Or we have musicians who could compose beautiful music, either songs for us to sing in worship or instrumental music. But I hope you would understand that as they do that, 
you know, the painter is taking paints and oils and things that create, and out of thoughts in their mind, they're translating them with, with materials into a, we call it a creation. But it, it isn't something that came into being that didn't exist before. And even music comes from the use of tonal notes on an accepted musical scale. You see, as we do creative things, we're really craftsmen. We assemble things from pre-existing materials. We assemble a house from wood and steel beams and concrete and all the other things that go into making a house. We don't create the concrete out of nothing or, or create the trees for the wood out of nothing. But God, being the infinite one, starts with his mere thought. And what Genesis portrays is absolutely amazing, way beyond, altogether different than what Carl Sagan said. As God thinks and speaks into existence things that did not exist. That's exactly what Paul said in Romans 4 when he wrote there about God who, quote, gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that did not exist. And by the way, we believe one reason that Jesus performed supernatural true miracles in his ministry was to demonstrate, to prove to us that he was the Son of God, the same God who was the Creator, that He could indeed, in a way that people didn't even understand what was happening, keep tearing off bread until it it just multiplied in His hands and multiplied and fed hundreds and thousands. Or He could raise a dead child. He could do the things that only the Creator God could do. So just in a quick word then, I put that verb here in Genesis 1-1, and then we'll be done with this first verse for now, to say that only God truly creates anything, brings things into existence that did not previously exist. Now, let's take a giant step ahead. I'm rushing so fast you'll all have whiplash. Verse 2. Let's see what we can do with verse 2 today, and that's our main point here That for most of the message. In fact, What I want to do is look at verse 2 under this banner to tell you that God transformed dark chaos and made bright order. And under that banner, I'm going to have three subdivisions as we look at verse 2. There's a remarkable creation snapshot here in verse 2 as I read it once again. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What economy of words the Bible has to tell us vast things, great and tremendous things that are hard to understand. We can only penetrate them as far as the actual meanings of the words allow us to go here. But these words do have some information to impart. So as a first sub-point on verse 2, I would say this, that In its initial phase, creation was marked by deficiencies, by things that were negative, not positive. There's several here. The cosmos is called unformed, uninhabited, and dark. Now, the big question gets raised, well, how long a period of time is Genesis 1-2 talking about? An instant? An hour? Eons, millions of years? I'm not prepared to answer that question. 
And in fact, I'm not going down that avenue this morning. The scientists tell us that the universe as we know it in their estimations and understanding is 4.5 billion years old. I'm not going to try to determine whether they're right or wrong. I don't ultimately know whether they're right or wrong, although next week I do want to talk about the concept of a day and of time as it appears here in Genesis 1. So leaving the time frame open, if you can do that. Genesis 1-2 pictures for us unorganized. We call it primordial matter. Matter that was before everything was in the patterns that we would see today or that the telescope would show us. And the ideas we have of this or the theories we would get along with what is said here would tell us that there were swirling clouds of gases and hot particles of all kinds and great pressures going on and steam and smoke and dark clouds. The cosmos as it's pictured in Genesis 1-2 is hardly a place ready for inhabitants. And that's why we think it emphasizes that it was empty. The word empty there implies not able to be inhabited. You know, it's a different thing when you see a house for sale. And then this sort of bad housing market right now, you might see houses with for sale signs and you can notice that the curtains have been taken down and you can look right through the house and see out the back windows. Oh, those people have already gone. That house is uninhabited, but it's not uninhabitable. You know, it wouldn't be difficult for someone to bring their moving truck and hang new curtains and bring their furniture in. But the earth is not only uninhabited, it's uninhabitable at this point in time. It's empty, it's a void, it's a desert, so to speak. And that's the emphasis Genesis is putting on here. But this, we know, is not God's ultimate intention for the creation. Isaiah 45, verse 18, said that the Lord did not create the world to be empty. He formed it to be inhabited. He always had the purpose that we should be in it. And so what we see in this verse, and however long a time this verse is talking about, is a is simply a preliminary time. It's a creation in transition towards greater organization and readiness for habitation. God's purposes are underway. He did create it to be inhabited. He didn't create something and said, well, what will I do with this? Or, you know, well, what am I doing here anyway? I don't even know why I created it. That wasn't the, the God of the Bible. He created it to be inhabited, Isaiah said. And he was on the way to that purpose even here. Some people wonder about the mention of waters there as the last part of that verse, the watery deep. Is there actual water? Are we supposed to picture an ocean? Some commentators say that that any idea of liquid is conveyed by the word there for waters. And you can think of all kinds of liquid substances, hot magma and various kinds of substances in constant flux of change and consolidation and heat and pressure. You have some idea, perhaps, from science courses what may have been going on that is described in these very few words in Genesis 1-2. One commentator on this verse mentions the fact that he has a friendship with a cabinet maker, a man who makes beautiful antique reproductions like the chairs and the communion table that our elders provided for 
this sanctuary when we came into it. These were made by a local craftsman. Well, the man he was talking about does that, and he said, you know, it's amazing. The things he produces are exquisite. They're just, they look like they're 300 years old. They're, they're beautiful in every way. But he said, you should see the workshop they come from. It's a mess. Wood shavings everywhere, tools scattered about, you know, used up paint cans laying open and tops on the floor. He, he's a messy guy. He said you wouldn't believe he could create such beautifully crafted and designed furniture out of the chaos of his workshop. Now, most workmen probably aren't like that. But the point is that great beauty and complex design can indeed come from initial chaos. It doesn't keep us. Genesis 1-2 is no bar to believing that God was moving towards the purpose of order and habitation that he had for his creation. Now, a second sub-point to mention here within verse 2 is the role of the Spirit of God. You should be struck to notice the idea of the Spirit of God hovering over these liquid deeps, these gaseous unformed substances. Isn't that curious? In the first verse, we had God, Elohim. I think I mentioned last time that the word Elohim is a plural word for God. Now, we, we really can't take that and immediately say, aha, the Trinity, but we can at least say what an interesting clue that is, that God is portrayed in that way. And now in the second verse, he is portrayed or named as the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the living presence of God, personally at work in this world that is underway toward being made. John Calvin commented on this, and he said, doubt might occur to us as to how this disorderly heap, he called it, could stand up at all. But now we are told that there is government and order imposed upon it by God the Spirit. You see, we can build on what Calvin was saying there and assert that the Spirit of God was actually the energy source of creation. As you study Scripture, and we could undertake a long study of verses to prove this, but there are many, many mentions where it is the Spirit of God Or the breath of God, the Hebrew word ruach is the same as breath, is spirit of God that puts life, puts energy, puts creative power into created things. Job 33 has Job say, the spirit of God made me the breath of God, gave me life. Psalm 104 verse 30 says, Lord, when you send your spirit, you renew the face of the earth. The Spirit of God has creative energy and life-giving energy. Now, there's an odd thing, and the, and the commentators get into big discussions over the verb attached to the Spirit. What was the Spirit of God doing? The NIV translation is just as good as any when it says it was hovering over the waters. A curious word, an unusual word. In fact, the language experts say the word could best be compared to the action of an eagle or a great bird, you know, kind of descending upon its nest. You know how its wings sort of flap and it slows down until it can land gently on its nest. Hovering. Why that word? 
I don't know that I have an authoritative answer to you, but I want to give you uh, something I think is fascinating. It comes from Henry Morris, a Bible commentator who also was a trained Ph.D. physicist. And here's something Morris suggested. I would say his comment is speculative. We can't prove it, but it's deeply interesting. As this physicist said, quote, the transmission of energy in, in the operations of the universe we know today comes in the form of waves. Every physicist will tell you this, light waves, heat waves, sound waves, and so forth. Morris said both gravitational forces and the electromagnetic spectrum of energy that powers our universe are all imparted in a wave-like fashion. Is it not then fascinating that when God the Spirit is described in Genesis 1-2, there is a sense of vibration in this hovering over the creation? You see, Morris is, is suggesting that God is imparting to his creation, suggestively here, the very energy that runs the engine of the universe. Atomic forces, nuclear forces, gravity, all the electromagnetic phenomena that I don't begin to understand. Morris is suggesting the Spirit of God is the energy that turned the universe on. Pretty fascinating stuff coming from a combined physicist and Bible scholar. Well, then in the third place, another sub-point over verse 2 here is this. In fact, it goes into verse 3, but it's still a sub-point of this idea of God bringing brightness and order out of darkness and chaos. We read now the very first command of God. Was it spoken with an audible voice? Now, that's all we can understand. We have, to, we have to give God human qualities to try to understand what he was doing. But God's not limited to our human qualities. I don't know what his voice sounds like, and that's not important. The idea is that the thought of God and the will of God express themselves as God said, let there be light. The very first thing spoken or attributed as being spoken by God in all of the Bible. Let this darkness be penetrated. Let there be in this the ability to see and to separate the darkness. Now, you notice, and we'll get into this later, but the sun, what we call the sun that gives light to our planet, isn't created until the fourth day. Where does this light come from? That's an an interesting puzzle. It doesn't come from the sun. It isn't reflected from the moon. Somehow it comes from the power of God himself. I can't explain it. No one can. But why should we think that the God who can create all things out of nothing could not bring light into its darkness by his own power? And so from that command, from that penetration of darkness and chaos, we start to see things unfold that we'll comment more on in coming weeks, that the light and the darkness are separated or divided The atmosphere and the planet are separated. The oceans and the land are divided. God begins to work and give some recognizable form to this dark and swirling chaos that was first described for us 
in verse 2. The, the appearance of his light was the signal event for creation to unfold in all its complexity. Well, I'm going to stop there with the description of the creation now. But once more, I have to remind you as we close today that this, this isn't about a science lesson. I'm not a science teacher. I'm out of my depth in most of these subjects. I need to rely on many experts. And I'm not here to just try to describe for you the science of Genesis, nor really is Genesis doing that. It gives us hints. It gives us information. It gives us enough about what God was doing that we can have confidence that he created in an orderly way, that he had design and purposes that he was carrying out here that he created this universe not as a meaningless place, but as a place designed for our good. But surely he has left it full of mysteries and full of questions. And we're not going to answer all those questions. Sometimes all we can do is pose them. But what does all this mean, just this much that we've gone over today, mean to us spiritually and as creatures living before this great and mighty God who's so vast? A writer you should be aware of who was a great Christian. He had a great way of expressing things, much like C.S. Lewis, is G.K. Chesterton, a British man of the early 20th century. Chesterton put forth an idea that applies here. Let me quote him. He said, Shall I tell you the secret of the whole world? It is this, that we so far have only known the back side of the world. In other words, we only see from behind, and the things we see look brutal and nonsensical. Chesterton said, that is not a tree over there. It's only the back of a tree. Can you realize that everything right now is hiding its face from you? And he said, if only we could get around to see the front. What a tantalizing idea. Can you apply what he was saying to yourself and your existence before God? Isn't it true that much of the time we're, we're looking at the backside of what God is doing? The image is often used of watching the weaver working at the loom, and we look at the backside, and the, the pattern doesn't seem to be a pattern. You've all seen the, the backside of a woven rug or a tapestry with threads hanging loose and colors all jumbled, and there's the vaguest outlines of things, but they really don't make much sense as they would around front. Isn't that the way we often live our lives? Seeing creation? seeing God's providence in our own existence only from the back? Now, we're saying here today that God works in redemption and in salvation of our lives in a very parallel way to how he works in the natural creation. He comes to people whose lives are dark and confused. Their lives are broken in pieces because of our own problems, our own sin. One author called sin, I think it applies here as we think about creation, sin is an act of trying to defy the laws of spiritual gravity. Well, you try that and you know what will happen. You try to defy the laws of gravity from a fifth story of a building. You're in trouble. You can't do it. You're going to be broken. And that's what we do when we 
defy the laws of God. We break ourselves and we, we come into darkness and we come into confusion and we say, why is this happening? Why am I like this? And God, by His Spirit, comes into disordered, broken, and tangled lives to make things new. The Scripture says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old life is gone and and everything is becoming new. You think of what you do in your home. You might have a makeover in your kitchen. It could be just a superficial makeover where all you do is put some wallpaper on the painted wall and maybe replace the countertops. And you think, oh, that looks good. It's new. Well, if you really want to make it new, what do you do? You rip out all the cabinets. You tear up the floor. You tear off the ceiling. You go back to the studs and you start over. That's what Christ does in a life. He makes us completely new. He brings into our lives things that did not previously exist. Forgiveness, peace, purpose before God, rest and confidence where all we had before was anxiety. We read here in Genesis 1 and 2 that God the Father and God the Spirit were present in creation. Well, we could go on and read at the beginning of the Gospel of John that Christ the Son was also there. John said at the beginning of his gospel that Christ, the Word, was present with the Father from the very beginning. And it is this Christ who says to us, I am the light of the world. He who walks in darkness, if he abides in me, will have the light of life. You see, this isn't a forcing of things together. This is the pattern by which God works. The same pattern by which he creates, he recreates. And the question to everyone is, have you come to see this Lord Jesus Christ as the recreator? As the one who brings newness of life as if you were stepping into the very dawn of the universe with him for the first time. That God has an architectural plan to remake you, to forgive you, and to eternally save you. You should take heart. Nothing's too hard for this God. He's the mighty one who created. He made you in the first place. And he's the one who hovers over your darkness and says to you, there can be light. Christ can turn the lights on for you. Until one final day, you not only see yourselves and your Savior, you will see all of reality, everything that is, and understand it as God makes it known. Because in the end, Christ, who is our light, will show us everything from the front. I promise. Let's pray. Father, What wonderful truths are spilling out of your word here in just these few verses. Help us as we continue to ponder these things to understand that you, the creator, are also God, the redeemer. Father, we look to you for the power we need to live new lives. We bow before Christ and say, make me new, remake me, purge from me all that is dark and confused. And we thank you that in the gospel there is your promise that this is exactly what you will do.
for Jesus' sake. Amen.